All right, Mark 14, if you will. Mark 14, and we'll get started. And uh, we're down now into verse number three and following. So uh, we're going to look here at the details. Again, um, what we're looking at here is the issue of uh, what Paul calls in 1 Corinthians 15, the, uh, where he says there in verse three, For I delivered unto you first of all that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins, and uh, according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day, according to the scriptures. And in Mark 14, what we're going to see, uh, obviously, as well as in Matthew and in Luke and in John, is the how that Christ died. A and again, that's that's the component of this that we need to know better than anybody is the how that. How that, what are the details, what are the events? So Mark 14, verse 1, After two days was the feast of the Passover and of unleavened bread, and the chief priests and scribes sought how they might take him by craft and put him to death. But they said, Not on a feast day, lest there be an uproar of the people. Now, we, we looked at that last time, but you'll notice after two days was, after the events in chapter 13, He's finished with the teaching, uh, the, the Olivet Discourse. All of that is done. Now he's in Jerusalem, and he's facing the cross. And he, again, after two days, the Feast of Passover, that's the 14th day. The Unleavened Bread Feast starts on the 15th and runs the week. But here's the vain religious system, the vain religious leaders of Israel and all that they're concerned with in verse 2 is not on the feast day, lest there be an uproar of the people. It's the ceremonial correctness. All they're worried about is being ceremonially correct. They won't, we'll see when we get over, they won't go, they're, they're taking them to Pilate. They won't enter the judgment hall unless they are uh, unclean, defiled. And all they're worried about is, is not being ceremonial unclean. They're about to go commit murder, and they're worried about the ceremonial issues rather than the fact that they're about to, to break one of the top ten commandments, and they're going to murder him. So, and by the way, that is all that, that's what religion does. Religion is simply about having the ceremony <laughs> and being ceremonially correct. And so we're going to see here as we go now in verse 3 to 9, Mark is going to take us back. We're going to have a flashback, if you will. And he's going to take us back to Bethany, to a meal where Christ is the, uh, he's the, he's the, he, he's the one that they're going to honor. He, he's the one that's, uh, man, what is the word? I just had it. He, he, the, the meal is to honor him, honored guest, Okay. It's going to be a picture here as we go down through it uh, of the little flock who understands who he is, who worships him as who he is, who values him for who he is. Then in verse 10 and 11, we're going to see Judas Iscariot and where he's going to go and betray Christ. And then in verse 12 and following down to verse, uh, we're going to see where the Lord is going to hold the Passover meal, where he is now going to be the host. So we're going to see some pictures here, and, and we're going to see some looks into, we're going to go back where he's honored, then he's betrayed, and now he hosts the meal and so forth. So in Mark, there's not a lot of conversation. There's not a lot of, well, and then he went over here, and he went over here. Mark is, let's get on right to the point, because that's what the servant, that's the portrait that he's picturing. Let's get on with this. So, I mean, on Sunday nights we're in Luke, <laughs> and there's a lot of detail. The all of this detail about everything, well, there's a reason for that. Here now, as we go through this, we need to watch what's happening very carefully. And again, not a lot of, not a lot of narrative, right to the point. But there is drama in the moment here that we don't really want to miss. So, verse 3. And being in Bethany, in the house of 
of uh, Simon the leper, as he sat at meat, there came a woman having an alabaster box of ointment, a spikenard, very precious, and she brake the box and poured it on his head. And there were some that had indignation within themselves and said, Why was this waste of the ointment made? For it might have been sold for more than 300 pence and have been given to the poor, and they murmured against her. And Jesus said, Let her alone. Why trouble ye her? She hath wrought a good work on me. For ye have the poor with you always, and whensoever ye will, ye, uh, ye may do them good, but me ye have not always. She hath done what she could. She has come aforehand to anoint my body to the burying. Verily I say unto you, whensoever this gospel shall be preached throughout the whole world, this also that she hath done shall be spoken of for a memorial of her. And again, most preachers do that, and then they go right to verse 10. Because, again, the, the anointing here, he's setting up some events. And this account, by the way, is, is recorded in all of the Gospels. But when you begin to look here at what's happening, really, you, you got to stick something in Mark, and let's go look at John 12. So come over to John 12. All right, and, and, and you just kind of have to pay attention a little bit because what Mark is going to do is he's going to flash back here for us. Because when you read John 12, which is when this supper at Bethany happens, verse 1, then Jesus six days before the Passover came to Bethany where Lazarus was, was, which had been dead, whom he raised from the dead. There they made him a supper, and Martha served, but Lazarus was one of them that sat at the table with him. Then took Mary a pound of ointment of spikenard, very costly, and anointed the feet of Jesus, and wiped his feet with her hair, and the house was filled with the odor of the ointment. Now, you'll notice when you read that, that that kind of, there's some, conflict with Mark 14, okay? And again, Mark says two days. John said what? Six days. So what Mark is doing, okay, is he's flashing back to the account of Bethany. So in Mark, just as he's about to get ready to go into uh, the betrayal and, and the upper room events and everything, he Mark will flash back for a very special reason, and we'll see that when we get there. Again, we're, we're talking about the cross, and here's the stage for the events that are going to lead up to Judas betraying Christ. See, so there's something happening here in this event six days earlier that Mark is going to catch. Actually, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are going to show, but Mark doesn't have it as... He's moving on, and yet he says, hang on a minute, before we get to Judas, we got to catch why Judas is now such a key player. What is happening? Why does Satan, and, and this event at Bethany is where Satan enters into to Judas to go and to do and so forth and, and, and everything. So there's a flashback here, and it's very important to catch how Mark says this in the record of the account. And what we're going to see is we're going to see some people here. You've got, by the way, notice in John 12, they're at Bethany and they're having a meal. Okay? There's nothing here about where they're having. Whose house are they in? See, everybody just naturally assumes it's Martha's and Mary's and that. But yet, what does Mark 14 say? There's Simon the leper at his house, see. As he said at me, we're in the house of. So you've got some detail here that isn't all, that, that's going to build this picture. And what we're going to see in Simon and Mary and Martha and Lazarus is this picture of the little flock who loved the Lord Jesus Christ, worked with him, worshipped him, valued him. Above all else, fellowshiped with him. He was their all. And then we'll see the picture.
picture of the rebellious heart of the nation of Israel and Judas. Okay, so this picture that's being drawn here of, of the, not only the little flock, but then of Judas, and that issue really is going to get into what he just covered in Mark 13 about that seductive policy of the adversary. And what we're going to see too, well, this evening for sure is we're going to see how Judas began to seduce away some of the very members of the little flock here. And we'll see that as we go down. So we're going to learn some things here about the seductive policy against that believing remnant, the little flock, uh, and how it comes about, the tactics of it, see. And there's a reason why here it, it, this is coming from their midst. Uh, hold on to all this and come over and look at 1 John 2. See, this is, the, the attack isn't coming from the outside. It's coming, from the, it's coming from their midst. From, it's coming inside and working out. If you look at 1 John 2, verse 19, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would no doubt have continued with us, but they went out that they might be made manifest that they were not all of us. <laughs> it's like, okay. Why? What are, well, here's Judas Iscariot. Who is he? He's one of them, but yet he's not. There's a seduction there. And this is a key verse to kind of help us understand as we're looking at this. They were a part of them. They were a part of the fellowship. Judas is sitting in the house eating the dinner, and yet he's going to stir the pot. And he's going to cause some, he's got that seductive policy Underway to do what to draw them away from, and come back to uh, you can let first John go, hold on to, to John 12, and go back there to Mark 14. So, we're going to have this big picture here, <laughs> all right, that's going to be drawn out for us. And, and, and again, you here we are, you, you're in uh. We're in Mark 14, and we're going to see the we're going to um, we're going to get to the last uh, the Passover that upper room. We're going to see Christ working there, but here we got to see we're going to see kind of the issue of uh, two two groups, if you will. You've got uh, you got Mark. All right, good. Hold on to that. Look over at Luke just real quick. You're, you're going to have some the this seeds of of um, uh, Luke uh, 22, you're going to have some seeds of uh, su seduction planted here. If you look at Luke 22, verse 3, Then entered Satan into Judas, surnamed Iscariot, being of the number of the twelve. So you got the twelve, and he's in gets into Judas. Remember he tells... Uh, Peter, the adversaries come to sift you away, to take you away. Be careful, take heed. That's, and what we're going to do in Mark 14 is we're going to see the, the method of it, the methodology, the tactics. So go to Mark 14. Okay? Mark 14. Notice, if you will, verse 3. And, and, and again, we're, we're Mark 14. We're going to look in John 12, just kind of catch the the things here, and, and there's a reason why we're looking at John 12 and not Matthew 26, okay? Matthew is going to mirror John greatly. John is going to have some completely different informations, okay? Uh, Mark 14, 3. And being in Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he sat at meat, there came a woman having an alabaster box of ointment, of spikenard, very precious, and she break the box and poured it on his head. Now, catch some things here that are happening. In John 12, he says nothing about, uh, about this at all, really, about Simon. But notice he's Simon the leper, okay? And he's mentioned only here in Mark 14. He's not mentioned in Matthew. He's not in Luke. So here, now think about the leper, what did the Lord do when he walked the, the earth? In Leviticus 13 and 14, it's all about leprosy and how to handle it. 
because leprosy uh, was a picture of the bondage and the corruption of sin. So how do we clean it? How do we clean up the issues of sin? But yet, what did Jesus Christ do? He cleansed the lepers, didn't he? So what you have here is you have a man who, who Christ has delivered from the bondage of sin, i.e. leprosy, and what does he care? What's his title? Simon the leper. Do you remember a lady called Rahab the harlot? By the time the two spies showed up, she wasn't in that business. She was a seller of flax and all other. She was another time. But yet, what is her moniker? All through Scripture, even into the Hebrew epistles, what's she called? Rahab the harlot. So that moniker there. So here's a man. They're going to go into his house. He's cleansed of leprosy. Now, come over to Luke 17 and just remind ourselves of some of this. Luke 17 and verse 12. Luke 17, 12. And as he entered into a certain village, there met him ten men that were lepers, which stood afar off. And they lifted up their voices and said, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. And when he saw them, he said unto them, Go show yourselves unto the priest. By the way, that's what Leviticus 13 and 14 tells them to do. And it came to pass that as they went, they were cleansed. And one, Now watch. And one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back and with a loud voice glorified God and fell down on his face at his feet, giving him thanks. And he was a what? Isn't that interesting? Here's a guy. He clean, the Lord cleans him, cleanses him. Does what Leviticus says, and yet, what is he? He's a Samaritan, see? Okay? Now, by the way, this is, that tells you that this event is not Mark 14, 3. Because in Mark 14, Simon, Simon the, he's not a Samaritan. He's, a, he's, a, he's in the southern Jew. He's a Jew. He's a believing remnant member. But watch verse 17. And Jesus answering said, were there not ten cleansed, but where are the nine? There are not found that return to give glory to God, save this stranger. See how he calls stranger? Again, Matthew 10, don't go in the way of the Gentiles, don't go in the way of the Samaritans. I'm not sent but the lost sheep of the house of Israel. You see, the lepers, they were outcasts. They've been standing on the outside watching. But notice who's been cleansed, been made whole, this guy. But it's only one out of the ten that comes and does what? Glorifies the Lord as who he is and the Father. See? Small remnant. A, a one out of ten comes and glorifies God, worships him. So when you come back to Mark 14, that's who this guy is. Mark 14, verse 3. And being in Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he sat at meat... So this, this gentleman, he's a leper. Again, Isaiah 35, what does the Messiah do when he comes? He cleanses the leper. That's one of his... So this guy is going to represent the believing remnant who have been delivered from the bondage of corruption. So there's Simon, delivered from the bondage of corruption. Okay? And again, you, I, you go to Luke 15, and who is Jesus? He's a friend of sinners. He eats with the publicans by, and the sinners. By the way, that's what got the Pharisees mad at him to begin with, okay, is that he would come and he would sit and eat with them. So for him, we're going to the house of Simon the leper. And what Jesus is doing, he's at his house. He's a friend of sinners, okay? So then you'll notice there's a woman. There came a woman. Have, Mark doesn't name the woman here. Now, John will, but Mark doesn't. And there's a reason, well, I don't get ahead of myself, but Mark doesn't name the woman here. So when you come over to John 12, back to John 12, verse 1, John 12, 1, there's some other people here in the house at the meal. Actually, it's a big house. It's a full house, okay? So, 12-1, who else is there? 
Well, Jesus, six days before the Passover, came to Bethany where Lazarus was, which had been dead, when he raised him from the dead. So who's at the meal? Lazarus. Now think about Lazarus. Lazarus, he was dead, but what did the Lord do? Chapter 11, raised him from the dead. So Lazarus is going to picture resurrection life. He's going to picture the, this event here of that he's fellowshipping and the come and he's there communion commun, communing with the the Messiah and what does he have? He's resurrection life. Then you have Martha. They there they made him a supper and Martha served. So guess what Martha's all about? Serving. Okay? And and again <laughs> Martha served. You remember Luke 10? Maybe you don't. Maybe you do. Go back to Luke 10. Hold on to John. Luke 10. Luke 10 and verse uh, 38. Now it came to pass as they went that he entered into a certain village and a certain woman named Martha received him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary, which, was all, which also sat at Jesus' feet. Now, it's interesting. She's always at his feet. She, she pours the, on his head, and she wipes his head and his feet. And that's very significant in the mannerisms of, of, the, Jew, of, of the Jewish uh, in, in, in that time. Okay, They'll come in. If you come into their house, they would wash your head or they would wash your feet. It was a welcoming thing. Okay, and she sat and heard his words, but Martha was cumbered about with uh, much serving and came to him and said, Lord, dost thou not care that my sister hath left me to serve alone? Evidently, Mar Mary was helping her, and then the Lord showed up, and she quit, and she went and sat down. Bid her, therefore, that she help me. And Jesus answered and said unto her, Martha, Martha, thou art careful and troubled about many things, but one thing is needful, and Mary hath chosen that good part, which shall not be taken away from her. So Martha, she's going to picture, flip back here to, to, to John 12, Martha's going to picture the, the, that little flock, that believing remnant, out serving, out doing, working, boom. And then in verse 3 of John 12, we have Mary. And Mary is focused on hearing the words of the prophet, hearing the words of the Messiah. Okay? And, and again, she's listening to what he said and is saying. Chapter, think about what she just witnessed in chapter 11. What did he just do? He just raised Lazarus from the dead. Martha if you go back to chapter 11, it's very interesting to watch this interchange here. And by the way, in John 11, in all of his earthly ministry, he would say, guys, we're going to go do this. But before we do that, we're going to go do this. And that's what he did with Lazarus. He knew Lazarus was sick. He's God. He knew, okay. But he delayed four days out to go. Look at, look at 11. Look at verse 17. Then when Jesus came, he found that he had lain in the grave four days already. Now Bethany was nigh unto Jerusalem, about 15 furlongs off, and many of the Jews came to Martha and Mary to comfort them concerning their brother. Then Martha, as soon as she heard Jesus was coming, went and met him, but Mary sat still in the house. Then said Martha unto Jesus, Lord, if thou hadst been here, my brother had not died. But I know that even now, whatsoever thou wilt ask of God, God will give it. Notice the faithfulness here. They know who the Lord is. They're not wishy-washy, maybe, maybe so. They understand. Jesus said unto her, verse 23, Thy brother shall rise again. Martha said unto him, I know that he shall rise again in the resurrection at the last days. What does she know? She knows there's a future resurrection into that kingdom. She's not a Bible dumbbell here. She's clearly a Bible believer. She actually knows more about the scripture than some of the so-called preachers today. She's not sitting here going, oh, is he ever going to come? No, not at all. She knows that. Now, watch Mary. 
drop down to verse 30. By the way, verse 25, Jesus said unto her, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he what? And yet, and so he resurrects Lazarus here. Lazarus is sitting at that meal in Bethany as what? A picture of resurrection life, of what's coming their way. Now, look, if you will, at verse 32. Watch Mary. Then when Mary was come where Jesus was and saw him, she fell down at his feet, saying unto him, Lord, if thou hast been here, my brother had not died. Her and Martha are on the same page. There's not one talking and the other one doesn't know. Mary knows too. And actually Mary is going to know and do something here with that ointment and the, and the anointing of the body. for the, And she's paying attention. Verse 32. Verse 33. Then Jesus therefore saw her weeping and the Jews also weeping, which came with her. He groaned in the spirit and was troubled and said, what, where have ye laid him? They said unto him, Lord, come and see. And what? Shortest verse in the Bible, Jesus wept. So what Mary's going to picture here is she's going to picture the, the, the high priest who's troubled by our infirmities. See, She's looking at him as priest and as prophet. See, she's right where she's supposed to be. She sees him as the son of God. Not king, but as the son of God. The one, she's the one who sees that he is to be worshipped. She looks at him and says, you are more valuable than anything I own. But what did the Lord say? If you're going to follow me, you have to forsake what? All. And she's doing that. So she's, she's that picture of the little flock, by the way, verse 36, then said, Jesus, then said the Jews, behold how he loved him. And some of them said, could not this man which opened the eyes of the blind have caused that even this man should not have died? The answer to that is yes, he could have. And then he does it. <laughs> okay. Now, So when you come back to chapter 12, what you see here is you see her picturing the little flock, forsaking all, following him. And what does she do? She breaks out this ointment of spikenard, very costly, had a, and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair, and the house was filled with the odor. Isn't that interesting? Notice, what did she do? She broke open, by the way, verse 5, why was not this ointment sold for 300 pence and given to the poor? Evidently, it's about a year's worth of wages that she's been socking away. And what does the Lord say? If you're going to follow me, you've got to forsake it all. And she goes over out of faith, and what does she do? She anoints him. By the way, Mark 14, just so you see that, anointment, she break it in 14.3 and poured it on his head. John says, poured it on, you know, anointed his feet. Well, if you dump it on the head, where's it going to land? It's going to work itself down. Again, that priestly activity and all that. So the thing is, is she's sitting there and she's anointing him. She takes her future retirement plan and broke it on his head. That didn't sound right. She, <laughs> like, whack. Well, not like that, okay? She, she did what? She's forsaking it all. She understood who he was, who he is. He's the son of God. And she makes a sacrifice of, of, this, of, 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 of this very valuable, costly ointment. I, I love that thing about how the, it filled with, uh, the house was filled with the odor of the ointment. That's, it's just, it took over the room. I don't know if you, Linda likes these candles that smell, okay? And they're okay sometimes, depends on. But what are they? They just consume the, you guys do those uh, essential oils, <laughs> you know? And they stink the house up. It's like, come on, really? And I got it. For some, it works. For me, it just gives me a headache. 
But the thing is, is what it, that's what he did. It just it consumed. His presence filled up. It dominated everything in the room. The picture there is it dominated everything for them. So that's what she's doing. She's doing exactly what the believing remnant's going to do. They, they're going to completely give all that they had as an act of love, as an act of devotion and worship and sacrifice for him. She's right there with him. We'll come back to Mark 14. And she's right on there. So you've got, this, you, you've got a picture here. Now, what's going to happen is we're going to see the reaction to this here, and, okay? But what do you got? You got Simon, picture of the believing remnant delivered. You've got Lazarus sitting at the table of life, communion, the communion of life. You've got Martha serving. You've got Mary worshiping. What's that believing remnant doing? All of this. All that this... this what you're seeing here is this wonderful relationship that's between the believing remnant and the Messiah and their dedication to him to sacrifice all in honor of him. Why? Because that's what he said. Forsake it all and follow me. And they're right there with him. Then in verse 4, here's the reaction. Now, this is very interesting in how the record is recorded here in Mark. And there were some that had indignation within themselves and said, why was this waste of the ointment made? Now, notice this very carefully. Notice it's some of them. So, some is more than one. Some's a few. of the. Here's this great group, and some of the group, they get angry within themselves inside of themselves now when you come to john 12 and again by the way we'll start real quick why was this waste you see they don't look at the sacrifice as an honor to the lord as an honor as a sacrifice to him they look at it as a waste their hard attitude within themselves was you just wasted 300 dollars see they got to completely, and the question is, is where did that come from? Here you've got this great meal. You've got all this wonderful fellowship going on, and she does this. It fills up the room and all this. And, they, and then some of them say, why did, what's, why did you waste it? Well, look at John 12. Because in John 12, verse 4, we see the leader of the sum. Okay? They have a leader. Again, 14.4, some, but John 12, verse 4, Then saith one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, which should betray him. Why was not this ointment uh, sold for 300 pence and given to the poor? Notice they have a leader, the le Judas Iscariot. He's the one who, again, the adversary has entered. He's the one that is now amongst, in their midst, causing some of the group to be moved away, to say, what a waste. What a waste of time. What a waste of resources. What a waste here. You see that? So Judas, he's, again, he's of them, but he's really not of them. <laughs> see? First John 2, he's there amongst them. But what's crazy about it is watch how he did it. Verse 5, why was not this ointment sold? Why wasn't it sold and given to who? To the poor. See? What, he, what Judas does is he sets an argument among, a, a thought process he persuades the, the sum of the group to say we ought to be taking care of who? The poor. Verse 6, this he said, not that he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief and had the bag 
and bear what was put therein. You see, Judas, you know what Judas says? You know, he could have saved, we could have sold this, and we could have went over here and fed all these people. But he didn't care about that. What did he care about? The bag. He's the treasurer. He's the guy, the money counter. He's collect, he holds the bag. You know what money does? He was a thief. 12-6. What is he? He's a thief. He's holding the money. He's not, his focus wasn't about the good of the poor. He was interested in the money, control, power. And when you hold the bag, <laughs> the treasury, you have power, you have position, you have control. And that's where his interest was. So what did he do? He comes in and he, well, you know what? You know, we could have, well, oh man, did you just see what she did? Wow, look at that. We could have, we could have fed so many people. You know, we could have done this. We could have done that for the poor. And he developed the idea into their thinking that, boy, that, act, that action was very wasteful. He's not concerned with the poor or taking care of them. And by the way, even today, when you hear the politicians talk about the poor, the poor children, they could care less about the children. Or the poor. The religious guys are the same way, by the way. Let's feed the poor in Africa. No, they don't care. They just want what? Their piece of the pie. They want, it's all about control. See, he doesn't care. He, if something doesn't make sense, follow the money and it'll make sense. You know, <laughs> if something's too good to be true, then it's not true, right? Follow the money. Come over to 1 Timothy 6, because in all of this, people like to pull stuff out and abuse these verses. 1 Timothy 6, verse number 10. If you think about this verse in the context of John 12, Mark 14, for the love of, and always the love, the money in the issue. Money's an inanimate object. Money has been replaced all it hasn't always been green dollar bills it's been other things over time but the love of money is the root of all evil okay but keep reading which while some coveted after so what is the evil here see the evil is covetousness colossians 3 says covetousness is idolatry what Judas is doing is, is he's coveting the money. And the more, the, more I, the more money we have, the more power I have, the more position, the more control over what's happening I have. So when you come back to John 12, go back to Mark 14, what you see here is he, Judas has infected some of the group who had come to worship the Lord and to fellowship with him, and they see him worshiped by Mary and the ointment and, and everything, and yet they grumbled at the cost of the ointment because Judas had infected them. So they say, what a waste. See, For it might have been sold, verse 5, for more than 300 pence, and have been given to the poor, and they murmured against them. See, they're grumbling. They're, this was inside, and it's bubbling out now. Because what does Judas say? He's, he's working the room. <laughs> he's got them all worked up. And then verse 6, Jesus steps in, and look at what he says, let her alone. Why trouble ye her? She hath wrought a good work on me. Isn't that interesting? Jesus Christ right there defines what, what a good work is, and it has... Something done on him. See, remember in Matthew 25 when he judges the Gentile nations out there and he says, when I thirst, you, you gave me drink and when I was hungry, you fed me and when I was clothed. And they say, when did we do that to you? And he said, when you did it to the least of these, my brethren, you did it to who? To me. You see, the good work that was done on Christ 
was honoring who he was. It wasn't breaking the spike nerd knowing, but it was identifying and honoring who he is, Messiah. He's the priest, the prophet, going to be the king, but Messiah. You follow that? See what she's doing here. She's not, it's not just something. He's the, the guest of honor. Verse 8, she hath done what she could. She has come aforehand to anoint my body to the bearing. She did what she could. <laughs> she took the opportunity that she had to do something. And she actually is understanding something that a lot of the disciples don't get. And that is, he's going to die and be what? Buried. But also, he's going to resurrect. So he really doesn't need to be anointed at the gravesite. He needs to be anointed beforehand. You follow? Because she knows what's happening. She just saw it with Lazarus, her brother. <laughs> and yet, what do the ladies do? Remember, resurrection morning, they go up to anoint the body. They're not getting it. Mary's not one of those Marys, if you will, because there's several Marys that go. My point is, is look at what, now, before you get to verse 8, we'll come back to that in just a second. Look at verse 7, because verse 7 gets kicked around and abused greatly in modern-day Christianity because of you're going to have the poor, for ye have the poor with you always. And whensoever ye will, ye may do them good. But me, you have not always. The poor, you're going to have always. So now we're talking about, and what they do is they use it to, to social justice and all this nonsense out there. And they rip this verse out of its context. And they say, oh, the poor, it's not about the poor, the condition of humanity at all in Israel's program. Come back with me to Deuteronomy. You're going to get Deuteronomy 28 first. In Israel's program, um, yeah, Deuteronomy 28. It's not talking about taking care of the poor, their poor, the homeless, and all that stuff that we hear about today. Okay, can you help them? Sure, you can help them. That's what the verse said. You can go and do good with them. But in Israel's, pro, there's more going on than there. Okay, they're going to always be there. The poor, in Israel's program, to be poor indicates a problem spiritually. And the problem is the problem of rebellion in the nation. All right? So Israel's poor isn't because of some calamity in life as far as a poor decision or that. They're poor because they chose not to obey God's commandments. Deuteronomy 28, verse 1. And it shall come to pass, if thou shalt hearken diligently unto the voice of the Lord thy God, to observe and to do all his commandments which I command thee this day, that the Lord thy God will set thee on high uh, above all nations of the earth. By the way, that's why on that chart that we hang, Israel is at top line. Why? Because in time past, that's their position. And all these blessings shall come on thee and overtake thee, if thou shalt hearken unto the voice of the Lord thy God. Blessed shalt thou be in the city, and blessed shalt thou be in the field. Blessed shall be the fruit of thy body. By the way, if they're not having kids, there's something wrong. See, it's not in the water, it's in their <laughs> disobedience. And you can read down through there, just run down to verse 11, for time's sake. And the Lord shall make thee plenteous in goods, in the fruit of thy body, in the fruit of thy cattle, and in the fruit of thy ground, and in the land which the Lord swear unto their fathers to give thee. That doesn't sound poor, does it? The Lord shall open unto thee his good treasure, the heaven to give the rain unto the land in his season, and to bless all the work of thine hand, and thou shalt lend unto many nations and thou shalt not borrow. That means they're wealthy. They're rich. There's money in the bank. See? If they were obeying God's word, then they would not be poor. So the poor are going to always be there with you is a rebuke to the unfaithfulness, not a condition of humanity. 
it's rather a rebuke of Israel, the nation's lack of obedience and their rebellion heart. Now come over to chapter 15, Deuteronomy. By the way, there in Deuteronomy 28, verse 15, if thou hearken, then all the curses come. <laughs> and the curses reverse the blessing. That's why in Malachi 3, when they says you've robbed God of, of uh, offerings and tithes, and, they, and he says, prove me. Oh, do what I tell you to do, and I'll fill it all up for you before, you know, you won't, you'll be building extra barns for the stuff. Why? Because that's the covenant agreement he's got with them. So when you read about the poor, now, by the way, Peter's going to tell Paul to remember the poor. That poor there is very specific, and that is the poor saints at Jerusalem because of Acts 2, they've been following, and in Acts 9, he changed the program on them, left them high and dry. They sold everything, they've given the alms and so forth. So Peter, and you know what Paul says? I've already been doing that, man. I've been doing that since the very beginning, taking care of them, helping them out. Pre, you know, and the Gentiles have been right with me. You got, now you got chapter 15, right? Verse 11. For the poor shall never cease out of the land. Isn't that interesting? How long are you going to have the poor? Always with you. Therefore I command thee, saying, Thou shalt open thy hand wide unto thy brother, to thy poor and to thy needy in thy land. Always you're going to have the poor. It, the condi <laughs> their condition is always, they don't keep the commandment, and guess what? The poor is always going to be there. There's always going to be that mixed element. If you look back up at verse 3, of a foreigner thou mayest ex, ex, um, exact, uh, that's a usury, interest, okay? Uh, it again, but that which is uh, thine with thy brother, thine hand shall, what? Release. He's talking about the sabbatical, the, the Sabbath, uh, the sabbatic year, and where they're going to release the debts, verse 4. Save when there shall be no poor among you. Hey, look at that. There will be one day. For the Lord shall greatly bless thee in the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee for an inheritance to possess, only if thou carefully hearken unto the voice of the Lord thy God to observe to do all these commandments which I command thee this day. If they are obeying, heart of obedience, then guess what? No poverty in the land. But they don't do that. So guess what? The poor is always going to be there. The poor, come over to Psalms chapter 10. Psalms 10. The poor was an indication that Israel wasn't obeying the commandments of the Lord. They weren't functioning properly. They were that, that <laughs> this whole, Psalms 10. The, the whole of it here is just a boom, all right? Now, Psalms 10 is a psalm about uh, the uh, day of Jacob's trouble, okay? It's going to talk about the Antichrist, verse 1. The pro, uh, psalms, uh, oh, I'm in Proverbs. That doesn't help, does it? We need psalms. We need, you need to be in Psalms 10, okay? I'm wondering why the Proverbs of Solomon. 10-1. <laughs> Why standest thou far off, O Lord? Why hidest thou thyself in times of trouble? Day of Jacob's trouble. You see verse 2, the wicked. Verse 4, or the wicked. The wicked here is the Antichrist. Verse 11, he, the wicked, the Antichrist, has said in his heart, God hath forgotten, he hideth his face, he will never see it. Verse 12, Arise, O Lord, O God, lift up thine arm, forget not the humble. There's the second coming. The Antichrist and his followers, what are they going to do? Verse 2, The wicked in his pride doth persecute the poor. Let them be taken in the devices that they have imagined. What's he going to do? He's going to persecute the poor. That's why in James 2, that great passage about justification plus work with works and all that good stuff, and everybody wrangles. There's a reason why he says, if your brother knocks on the door, you better feed him and take care of him. See, there's, there's a reason why if you don't provide for him, what have you done? 
you're in trouble. See, there, there's a reason why. Because in Israel, the poor in Israel, there's a reason why they're poor. They have, come back to Mark 14. They have their, that heart of, rebel, of, of rebellion. They've failed to follow the covenant that was theirs. So in 14.7, the poor here, again, not a condition of humanity, but yet a spiritual condition within the nation. And if Judas really cared about the poor, you know what he would have been doing? Keeping the covenant agreement. See, he'd have been over there doing, not rebelling against it. <laughs> he would have been right there lockstep with the Lord, worshiping the Lord, honoring the Lord, sacrificing to the Lord. He would have been right lockstep on it, but he wasn't. He's over here counting the money, going, hey, that was 300, above 300, Mark 14. You know, let's get on with this, okay? Now you get to verse 8. Let me finish this up. She hath done what she could. I, I, I love that. Mary's doing what was to be done. She brought a good work. Uh, to, uh, she, she has come aforehand, again, aforehand to anoint my body to the burying. What she did, when it, when it says there she had done what she could, that's been used with people dead. Oh, she's done what she could. Blah, blah. No. She, what, there's a time constraint here. We're six days before what? Passover, before his death, before the cross, before the burial. She doesn't have months and years and time. She's, she's done what she could in that short period of time. It's a time element. And because of the time limitation, because of the time constraint, she's, he's going to go die. That's a given. We're, you know, Mark's flashback six days. We're two days. He was, she understands <laughs> that he's going to go die. So what does she do? She anoints his body for the burying. Remember three times up to this point he's told the disciples, I got to go to Jerusalem and die and be buried and rose again. And they didn't get it. They still aren't getting it. She got it. Notice, she, by the way, verse 8, she doesn't say this. The Lord Jesus Christ says this. She anointed my body to the burying. She's anointing, she's doing what she's doing in light of me going to be buried here in a few days. And you know what she did? She did everything she could. What she, she forsook it all. She, she knows he's the prophet, the priest, and the king, going to be Messiah, Savior, Redeemer, Deliverer, Avenger, Blesser, and King. She knows who she is. She could only do because of a limitation here of what's happening. Okay? Verse 9. Verily I say unto you, Whosoever this, or I'm sorry, wheresoever this gospel shall be preached throughout the whole world, this also that she hath done shall be a spoken of for a memorial of her. Now, this is a tough verse for most. Where this gospel, all right? Whoever heard the gospel and then heard her story? Nobody has. Okay, so then the thing is, is what gospel, right? Well, this is the gospel of the kingdom. Back in chapter 13, verse number 10, and the gospel must first be published among all nations. See? So this information here is when is the gospel going to be preached, 14.9, throughout the whole world? When does that happen? Millennial kingdom. See how he's, he's beyond his death, burial, and resurrection? And he's bringing up in the millennial kingdom, when the gospel of the kingdom is being preached, Matthew 28, when they go out to all the nations, a component in that is going to be this story of her. Okay? A memorial to her. Now think about this. Mark, Matthew and Mark, do not name her. John does. All right? But John doesn't tell you it's a memorial. Matthew and Mark do. Or, or, well, really, Mark does. 
This is a memorial, no name. Why not, no, why not name her? Because she represents a, the bigger group of that believing remnant. She's not honed down into just what's going to be revealed and is what the believing remnant, the group, is doing. What are they doing? They're honoring him. They're worshiping him. They're valuing him. They're keeping his word. He's the, the prophet, priest, and king. He, that, that, what has she done here? Everything's been centered around him. Come back with me to Malachi chapter 3. I was thinking about this today as thinking about uh, Sunday being, a, being an anniversary. Um, Malachi 3, here's a memorial for you. Verse 16. Then they that feared the Lord spake often one to another, and the Lord hearkened and heard it, and a book of remembrance was written before him for them that feared the Lord and that thought upon his name. Only the believing remnant does that. And this is the believing remnant going through the 70th week of Daniel. There's a book of remembrance written before him for them that feared his name and thought upon his name. It's not, this isn't the book of life. This is a book of what? Of remembrance. Verse 17, And they shall be mine, saith the Lord of hosts, in that day when I make up my jewels, and I will uh, spare them as a man spareth his own son that serveth him. Then shall ye return and discern between the righteous and the wicked, between him that serveth God and him that serveth him not. A, a remembrance, a memorial is raised up to that believing remnant out there for their faithfulness, in that day of tribulation, in that day of trouble. So when you come back here to Mark 14, John 12, Mary represents a picture of that, of this, of a memorial. Of what did she do? She thought upon his name. She thought about him. She worshiped him. She honored him. She sacrificed for him. And what you have is a picture here, this whole event, three to nine, this whole event pictures that little flock worshiping and serving, completely sold out for him, enjoying the deliverance from the satanic pol seduction policy of the adversary. Yet, what's going to come? The attack. That's going to be verse 10 and 11. And we'll get there next week. What's coming? The attack of the adversary. We'll see us tactics. It's a waste of your resources, of your life, to forsake all and follow him. That's what he's going to tell them. Think about what they have. They got a mark of the beast issue coming their way. And if they, they, they there's some things here that are going to be right there. That's why he says, endure to the end to be saved. Those who endure to the end shall be saved. Why? Because there's tactics coming, an attack happening. And the adversary is going to say, why don't you live for now? Don't worry about the future. Just go for now. You know, James says that. Your life is but a vapor. We say we're good to go now, but then, and we got, we're not paying attention. See, They're going to face this. And what you see here is a picture point painted by Mark of, hey, look, guys, things are going to happen. And here's the tactics. And you know how you're going to win this? You're going to win it by valuing him above all else. You're going to forsake all and follow him. And that's, that's the picture being painted. Because what's about to happen? He's going to die. He's going to be buried. He's going to resurrect. Forty days later, he's going to ascend up. And there's that ascension, that whole process, the whole of it. And when that happens, you guys got a job to do, and the adversary is going to keep on pummeling it, and this is how he's going to do it. Why are you worried about the future? Why are you valuing him? He's gone. He's not even here anymore. And that's why in that verse there, the end of verse 7, but me you have not always. There's that little reminder again of paying attention. Okay? So a tremendous passage here. Pictures. Okay? Of what's coming. And I know what modern day Christianity does. They come in here and they get you all worked up and now we're taking a collection for the poor. No. No. The poor belong to Israel and Israel's program. It's a sign of 
that uh, rebellious heart that they have. So you want to help somebody, I can give you a couple places to go help, okay? All right, one, anyway. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for the evening, Lord. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the look into it here and for the wonderful picture painted of those that love you, value you, worship you, sacrifice for you. And Lord, I just think that we could take this and learn from it as we too, as we walk in our day-to-day and think about these things in light of your grace. In your name we pray, amen.